coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. It's 2013 and we wrap up some of the final films of 2012, including The Last Tycoon, Lost in Thailand, Les Miserables, and Wreck-It Ralph. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. It is Wednesday, January 2nd, 2013, at long last. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Fox, and joining me from his super secret location right here in the Fragrant Harbor for the new year is Mr. Kevin Ma. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Doing well. Happy New Year to you, sir. Happy New Year. So far, so good. Uh... We are uh, slowly coasting along. How was your New Year's Eve? Any any big celebration? No, I, I, I follow my uh, usual routine, which is uh, watching the big Kohaku Utakasen from, from Japan, the, the New Year's Eve musical, uh, musical spectacular. Um, so fairly, you know, quiet uh, uh, New Year's Eve. And then, But uh, before that, actually a couple of days before that, I became an uncle last oh, week. Oh, congratulations. Uncle yes. Kevin. Uncle Kevin, so um, in case I ever download the show down, um, this is my first public shout-out. Hi, Audrey. This is your uncle speaking. I'm going to download this and, and, and uh, have her listen to it a couple years later. and, and So she can hear her first public shout-out. Podcast? That's so old. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. That's excellent news. Thank you. Um, and, a, and a nice way to sort of start off the new year, no less. Yes, yes. Uh, I'll get to meet her next year when I mean next month when I go back to the states for mm-hmm. vacation. But yeah, for now, uh, yeah, I'm very happy, Uncle. So I'm guessing that you'll be going back during Chinese New Year. Yes, yes, yeah. Chinese New Year, the extended holiday. Yeah. So, uh, so first a... time I'm spending the New Year in, in in America, I think, for in, in years. Mm, yeah. So, well, is it like a big gathering because of the birth that's going to bring all the family together for the for the holiday? I don't really have a big extended family in mm. in America, so it'll be you know a nice intimate the d family uh, a few of us of course mm-hmm. uh yeah and it'll be nice all right excellent um yeah i didn't do much uh we had uh, the family over to the house and we had uh siu fei young or little sheep hot pot uh, at home Ooh. and uh as per my i don't know if you'd call it a tradition or just my old age showing uh, i fell asleep about 11 o'clock <laughs> <laughs> and i slept through the new year as i'm wont to do uh, for the past decade, New Year's never really been a big deal for me. Um, I mean, I like I like being together with the family. <clears throat> we stopped. I, I I stopped going out. I think I went out the first year uh, that I was in Hong Kong, and that sea of people uh, and the you know eighty minute crush just to get back to the nearest uh, train station was enough for me. So I prefer quiet nights at home, uh, good food with the family. We watched. Uh, Watched a little bit of TV, did a lot of talking, and uh, then I promptly conked out. Um, 
but that's how I prefer it. It was it was a nice night all the way around. So I hope that everybody out there listening also had a very wonderful holiday, and we are promptly rushing out into the uh, new year of 2013, but we have some stuff that we need to kind of go back and reflect on. So we're going to do some reflection in this episode and try and cover quite a few of the films that we uh, have missed here in the final month of December. Um, so this is sort of going to be a wrap-up film uh, session for the, this episode. And then next week we'll be back with some of the first films of uh, 2013 proper. Uh, so what are we going to be looking at today, Kevin? Uh, for East Screen, uh, we'll be talking about The Last Tycoon, the new Wang Jing film starring Charon Fat and Huan Xiaoming and Sam Hong and Francis Zing. Um, and I will be talking about, finally, uh, Lost in Thailand, the, the huge uh, uh, China box office hit, uh, now the most successful Chinese film ever made. Uh, I, went to, I went over the border to watch that last week, so, so I'm back to talk about it. Um, for West Screen, I'll be talking about Les Miserables because I'm the only one geeky enough to go watch a musical, whereas, you know, Paul is smart enough not to. Uh, and and, and uh, we will talk, we'll be also be talking about Wreck-It Ralph. All right. All of that and much more coming up right after a little bit of news. Okay, so I lied. We're not doing any news this week. We're actually <laughs> going to be just, uh, you know, talking about uh, 2012, the year in review. Um, why don't we start off and, you know, just briefly... Give us a rundown of what you think some of the high points and some of the low points were for uh, East Screen films for you, Kevin. Um, I haven't decided on my Hong Kong list yet because um, no, it's not that time yet, and I haven't watched all the Hong Kong films I need to watch. But um, there's some really Asian Asia has been kind of weak on the world stage this year. I mean, um, Korea's Kinky Duck won the, the Golden Lion, but only by because of a technicality. Um, but still, I mean, there's still many. Strong, strong films, um, especially some Bollywood films this year. I I, I tweeted my top ten list a couple of days ago, and I had two Bollywood films um, that I was able to watch because of this great little lineup uh, in Hong Kong, a little programming thing by UA Cinemas here called UA Cinehub, and they've been showing some um, really good Bollywood films, and that includes uh, Zindagi Na Milegi Dobara, or otherwise known as a. Uh, you don't get to live life twice. That's the Indian uh, road film that I think I talked about for East Screen. Um, that's one of the best films I've seen in a year. Also, Kahani, Kahani, the 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 mystery um, thriller uh, from 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 India. Those are my two highlights of the year from from Bollywood. Um, also, actually, thanks to the the new little this little secret or not really secret, but Indian screening thing where we get to watch our films day to date from India, got to watch some great new Bollywood stuff, including English, English, and uh, also Barfi. Both are on my honorable mentions list. Um, otherwise, a Japanese film is still kind of my favorite, I guess, uh, even though there has been very, very weak year for Japan. Uh, I've seen a couple of really great Japanese films, including um, uh, Koreeda's uh, I Wish, which also had a distribution in the States this past summer. Um, a documentary called Nuclear Nation uh, about about a town in uh, northeast Japan that was essentially um, evacuated. The entire town was evacuated due to the nuclear disaster after the earthquake. Uh, and, it's and it's about the, the, the shelter that these people live in. Uh, also, another documentary named Ending Note um, about a director's, uh, a filmmaker's uh, father's last day. So she took a camera and documented her father's last days. Um, it's a very excellent documentary. Um, also, Wolf Children, the, the new uh, animated film from the director of Summer Wars. Um, another really great follow-up. 
a very different film, but a, but a great film. Uh, so that's uh, some of my uh, e-screen films. Uh, how about you, Paul? Any what was your e-screen highlights this year? Yeah, um, I'd have to say uh, I haven't certainly haven't seen quite as many films as you have because I've uh, not had the good fortune to be uh, able to partake in the festival circuit that you uh, get out to. So you see a lot more stuff than I do. But just for some of the local films, from some of the Hong Kong stuff that I've seen. Um, probably the one that sticks out in my mind the most right now has had the sort of the longest, uh, impact and remained in my brain is, uh, Herman Yao's Love Lifting. Um, wow. not, you know, a, a high, a strongly well-received film, but one that I really liked a lot more than I thought I would. And, uh, I, I, it's unfortunate that the, uh, the DVD is such poor quality, um, in terms of, uh, the, 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 the look of the film, it, it looks like VCD quality, um, but it's it's a great story, and it looks great in the cinemas, and uh, I really liked it. And I I was very skeptical going in, thinking that you know little Elaine Kong is gonna uh, pull off this role as a as a power lifter. And she not only did it, um, she did it with some style, and and I really liked the story. Um, and Herman Yao continues to be a director that can surprise me on occasion. Um, let's see other. Um, other uh, East screen stuff, Love and the Buff, of course, uh, was a was a great follow up to Love and a Puff, and uh, then this summer we had uh, Vulgaria, uh, which we've talked about before. Um, I also really like The Bullet Vanishes, um, even though I don't think that's probably on a lot of people's favorites list. Um, I liked uh, the quirkiness of Lao Ching Wan in that film. And probably the, the oddball out, uh, I guess I'm the oddball out on this. I really liked my uh, the sequel to My Wife is 18, My Sassy Hubby. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, it, it felt like a return to uh, an earlier Hong Kong period that wasn't that long ago, you know, just uh, almost a decade ago. Um, and it made me feel nostalgic for, I mean, a, a time period when Hong Kong movies were still kind of being Hong Kong movies and not sort of being hybrid Hong Kong slash mainland China films. And even though this one kind of was, you know, it, it kind, kind of had to go in that direction, it still felt a little bit closer to home. Um, so, yeah, really, uh, I'd say those are some of the high points. Low points, um, you know, there were, there were a couple. Um, I'd say the biggest low point of the film for, for me was probably the cases. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, that was a pretty terrible, terrible film. Um, and, you know, there, there have been some others, but uh, maybe we'll, we'll do a worst of list at some point. Uh, and, of course, we've got the Love Hong Kong Film Awards, which will be coming up fairly soon. Uh, how about West Screen? Anything uh, stick out in your mind for West Screen over the 2012 year? Well, but before we get into that, actually, this year, I want to talk about this year's festival circuit, actually. Um, mm -hmm. This year's festival circuit has actually been very disappointing in terms of Hong Kong because... Um, the, the three major festivals that I like to go to, which is the Hong Kong International Film Festival, the Summer Film Festival, which is the summer edition of the Hong Kong International Film Festival, and the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Actually, all three festivals have been quite disappointing this year because many of their choices um, essentially were just launching uh, screen as launching pads to theatrical releases. So actually, this year I, I watched a lot less festival films, and and um, I had many other ways to watch films. Actually, uh, iTunes. Um, Festival Scope, a website called Festival Scopes that film professional can can check out because they can um, watch films on there without having to deal with the 
the the the the gossip and the socializing and the lining up and the flying to all the different festivals and it's like having a film festival in your own home mm. and I and I appreciate so those 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 actually kept me going this year so um and speaking so of uh, speaking of Bollywood films um there's that uh, app that you mentioned before yes Eros Now yeah Eros Now which uh, can get you and and if I remember correctly that is not. Uh, that doesn't have any kind of region blocking. If you basically sub- subscribe, you, you can do it any place on the planet and get access to those films. I believe the only places with more heavier regional ex- restrictions are probably U.S. and the U.K. and maybe Australia, where you know a lot of these films already have separate theatrical distribution deals. Mm. So, so there might be some regional restrictions there. But here from Hong Kong, and I think most other countries, there's really no problem because these films, uh, the rights don't sell. Yeah. To these two to places like you know Japan or Asia or you know Hong Kong, um, so actually you really don't have to be a a film festival um, guy really to to catch up on these films anymore. Actually, these days even I'm not I'm still not in the circuit, but you know, I still have a chance to watch these movies because you know thanks to globalization and like you were saying, Paul, uh, you've been saying all year about net distribution. Yeah. This is the wonderful thing about net distribution yeah. is that it, anyone can be a film buff if you know you put in a little money, put in a little effort, and then uh, and have the willingness, uh, you know, be willing enough to watch movies on your computer. Um, and you can still be a legal film buff. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, and I mean, well, even a um, friend of the show, uh, Marco Spomberg, was one of his films was um, recently highlighted in sort of a. It was kind of like a, an online festival and then they did a google hangout uh talk about it i unfortunately i was busy the morning that they did that but um i think that there are going to be more and more things like that going on and i think he just tweeted that there's another uh that uh um um squatter town is getting ready to get another kind of a similar treatment uh it was going to get a commentary or or some kind of a rundown yeah, it'll be a little late, but that's happening actually tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe Wednesday morning here in Hong Kong so time. So by the time you're late. hearing this, it'll be over. But there's more and more stuff like that that's going on, which I think is really, really interesting and and really kind of uh, opening a potential in a lot of new directions. It's going to be hard to say if any of this, any of this is really going to catch on uh, big time. But I, I find it interesting to see uh, some of these... Uh, some of these experiments in different ways of access and, and talking about film going on. Yeah. But anyway, okay, back to, back to West screen. Um, not actually, I, I, I thought I've saw, I've seen a lot of strong West Western films this year, but actually I didn't even find, um, oh, let's be in, in Asia. It's very difficult to us to watch the big, um, Academy Award favors until, um, until January or February, yeah. because, you know, they they, they have to get the, they have um, to get nominated first before they end up showing up over here. Yes, because they need the nominations to launch a a financially viable um, uh, 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 screening or uh, yeah distribution here. So so you know it's, it's totally understandable because yes, not everyone looks at follows the award season in America, yeah. and it wouldn't make sense for anyone to do it anyway. So yes, they need these kind of award nominations and these accolades earned at home first to to make. Say like zero dark thirty to to sell here in Hong Kong or the master. So um, my 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 favorite list uh this year I decided to just throw it in to 2011's list. Uh, even though these are late 2010 films, so films like Hugo, uh, Girl of the Dragon Tattoo, um um, what else I'm looking at here? Uh, what even War Horse was some of the the films that late 2010 films that or late 2011 films that that I enjoyed in 20. 2012 um 
also there's an Iranian film by Jahar Panani called um, This Is Not A Film. It's actually a documentary about um, because the director is actually in house arrest in Iran. Uh, and he's he's banned from making films, so he just sort of turned the camera on himself at home one day, and uh, and starts reenacting a film that he wanted to make, and and it, it kind of turns into this really interesting statement about filmmaking and of course oppression, living in an oppressive country like this. Um, of course, Ang Lee's Life of Pi, which we we really liked, I think we both really liked. Um, the French film Intouchables, which finally got to Hong Kong, and I saw and I enjoyed a lot. Um, Wes Anderson's uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, because I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan, and this is a very Wes Anderson film, uh, and I kind of like that um, quirkiness a lot. Uh, but one film that uh, some people, not even people in America, may know about um, is a documentary that I saw last week called Queen of Versailles. Um, it's about a David Siegel, I think his name is, uh, and his family. Uh, the film starts out about you know them being filthy rich and um, about to build the largest house in America. Um, called Versailles. And then of course halfway through or forty five minutes into the film or so, the financial tsunami happens and and they they kind of run into financial trouble and you kind of see these, you know, really rich families suddenly having to 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 um save money and as their business start to go down and they start to run out of money. And it's a very fascinating documentary. Um don't read anything about the film until afterwards because uh you may it will probably change your opinion of the filmmakers and the film. But as a film itself, it's a very strong narrative um, documentary. And it kind of fits the, it's a very, very timely film, uh, especially for people who are not rich. There's kind of a joy in watching rich people go down in flames. And uh, it's kind of a sick <laughs> fascination. Uh, and this, this one will, will, will satisfy it a lot. Um, and I, I guess, I, I guess I put up one film that, you know, some people kind of was wondering why I put it on this 21 jump street. The, the oh, chanting, yeah. Channing Tatum, Jonah Hill film, I I loved it. It's it's such like it, okay, it's a it's a typical meta comedy, but it's not meta in a way that it's like um a, a spoof film. So it's kind of a half spoof film and just kind of half straight up comedy, and it all matches really well because it, you know they would be they would be doing these you know police comedy moments like a chase, and suddenly there would be these spoof moments in the middle of the chase, you know like. They keep expecting stuff to explode, but then it never does. Or, you know, actually, um, Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum are really funny together. And, and uh, Ice Cube, whenever Ice Cube st- shows up and starts speaking, I, I laugh. I-, I laughed out loud when I was watching it by myself at home, like, really loudly, almost, almost shamefully loudly. And it's, it's a film that I didn't expect myself to enjoy so much, but I really, really loved it. And it- it's a film that I, remember- I keep remembering when I had to come with my list. So it's, I-, I included 21 Jump Street. And, um, yeah... So so a pretty solid year, not really excellent year because I haven't watched the big awards contender yet. So I look forward to to catching them, uh, catching up on those uh, this uh, next couple of months. Paul, uh, West Screen. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. For me, it's a lot of geek related films um, that are up there, and, and and a couple a couple of disappointments. I'd say um, probably one of the first films that really um, got a lot of buzz, and then when I got to see it, I kind of I, I got on board the hype train was um, Cabin in the Woods uh, from Joss Whedon. Um, I think that it really played with the the, the genre and, and went in some places that I, I, I wasn't expecting, and I really like when movies do that. And uh, it helps if you know the genre well enough to um, follow along with some of what he's playing with in, in that film. Um, there's a lot of really subtle, tiny references from a lot of other horror films. 
uh, that I really appreciated. And I'm not a huge horror fan, but I've seen I've seen most of the uh, big name stuff over the years, and uh, I think that uh, it's something something in that I I really really enjoyed. Um, of course, you've got the the big comic book um, uh, hits, I guess you'd call it. You know, you've had uh, yeah the Avengers, which we've been building to for a number of years, which I think you know came out and really well done. Uh, on the other other end of the spectrum, though, you've got the Spider Man reboot, which I think I liked more than most people, but it wasn't really a favorite moment of mine, uh, a favorite film of mine, and in part it suffers from reboot-itis, I guess, you know, again, telling that origin story. Even though I think it was well done and I liked the, I liked the leads in it, um, I would have much rather they just had continued on without telling the, uh, the story over again. Um, uh, Dark Knight Rises, big disappointment for me. Um, was, I mean, it was, yeah, it was Christopher Nolan and, uh, you know, it was a conclusion of the series, but I'd say for me, it was the weakest of the three films and I did not like it nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, The Hobbit, I love The Hobbit. I know a lot of people were hating on The Hobbit because of, you know, different reasons. And we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Um, but I was so excited for the film and, and I'm excited to get a chance to see it again at some point and I enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to the sequels. I just hate that we have to wait, you know, uh, for another year and then another year uh, to get through the whole story. Um, I, I think in terms of animation, um, a lot of stuff came out and surprised me. Um, kind of disappointed by Brave uh, from Pixar at the same time. Uh, I heard a lot of good stuff about Paranorman. I thought Paranorman was okay. Madagascar 3, I just ended up watching the other day um, with my wife, and I loved it. I thought, you know, because I've never been a huge fan of the Madagascar series, uh, but it seems like with each film, I, I didn't really like the first one. second one I thought was better, and this one I thought was great. Um, seemed to have a lot more humor in it that I was getting and really got into it a lot more. But um, the film we're going to talk about today, Wreck-It Ralph, stands at the top of my list for... Uh, animation stuff. Um, I of course the film that still continues to floor me though, and and sticks with me from, you know, and again it's I question the notion of calling it a West Screen film, uh, and this sort of you know we 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 label our films by this very you know sort of black and white category East Screen West Screen, um, and that's Life of Pi. Um, it's it's been one of those films that I really has really transformed the more I thought about it, where I started off not really liking it, and then the more I got away from it, the more I thought about it, the more deeply I got into it, even after a second screening, um, the more I, I, I like it, and the more it's left a lasting impact on me. And so for me, when films do that, the, they, they end up getting up you know, pretty high in my memory and being things that I anticipate. Of course, the one film of East Screen or West Screen that I have to mention is Paradise Island. Passion Island. Or Passion Island. Sorry, I always call it Paradise Island. Passion <laughs> Island. Because this is probably one of the worst films, not as bad as the cases, but one of the worst films and yet one of the best films of 2012. And I'm just dying for this thing to come out on video so that we can do a commentary of it and I can get more people introduced to it. And I just, where is this, where is this DVD? You know, you, you work in the industry, get on it, Kevin. I mean, get, get with the powers that be and make this thing happen. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been, a, it's been a fun year. It's been an interesting year and hopefully 
we're going to have a lot more fun and a lot to look forward to in 2013. And of course, like I said, we've got the Love Hong Kong Film Awards coming soon. Um, Kozo is getting ready to do, I think he's down to, to the to the last 20 for the best uh, Hong Kong films of all time, right? Yes. Um, so I'll that's getting that's wire. getting ready to wrap up. So there's a lot going on, a lot being talked about. Of course, everybody's talking about sort of year in review stuff. Um, so there's a lot going on out there and everybody's got their, their different points. And uh, we're happy to be able to share some of our thoughts with you. But for now, I think we're pressed for time because we got a lot of movies to cover so let's move on and actually talk about some of our films all right so we've got two east screen films to talk about up first uh the last tycoon um this is the latest film from wong jing starring none other than chow yun fat along with sammo hung uh francis Ng, and huang xiaoming so basically this story, um, it takes place in two different time frames. It starts out in 1913, um, following sort of the life of a poor young, young guy named uh, Cheng Daqi, uh, who's uh, initially played by Huang Xiaoming. And he is, uh, you know, he, he's kind of from the other side of the tracks, not got a good background. And um, he... Uh, he is in a relationship with uh, a young girl who has a desire. She wants, she dreams of being uh, a Chinese opera star, and her father is dead set against it. Um, so he and she plan to, you know, run off and pursue their dreams together. Um, unfortunately, fate kind of sends them along on different paths. She ends up heading off to Beijing uh, so she can study her craft, and he ends up heading to Shanghai, where eventually, as fate would have it, he runs into. Uh, Sammo Hung's character, who's named Hung Saoting. And Sammo is both the chief of police and he's also the head of the local organized crime. Um, so it's good if you're on like both sides of that coin, right? You, you, you get the best of both worlds. Um, and so uh, Hung Saoting, Sammo's character, recognizes the potential in this young man and, and brings him into the organization uh, to work for him. And he very quickly becomes a success, works his way up, and, and helps to take over uh, much of the business as Samo's sort of right-hand man. And the, the primary pinnacle of this business is a, is a hotel uh, that they run out of called uh, the... Um, the Grand Shanghai. Grand Shanghai, or, or the Big Shanghai, yeah. And that, it's kind of a weird thing, because it, it seems like that they go legit, um, but then they're super rich, so you're kind of not sure how they're doing it. Um, they're, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But basically, um, it sets up uh, early on before he gets to Shanghai, he gets accused of a murder that he didn't commit. This is uh, when he's the Chang Dachi character, still played by Huang Xiaoming. And so he's put in jail and he's going to be tried, but all, he happens to be in a cell with another character played by Francis M. Now, Francis Ng's character uh, is in the army, and he has some army buddies come in and help him break out. And uh, he comes into play a little bit later on. He kind of uh, helps out uh, the Chang Dachi character, and then he comes back later. He's risen through the ranks. And so it's pretty much the relationship between these three men, uh, the Chang Dachi character, um, his Sifu, or his boss, uh, played by Samo, 
and then their relationship with Francis Ng, who's this military leader. Uh, all of them sort of, you know, looking for money and power in Shanghai. So this, the later portions, when we actually get to see Chow Yun-fat, um, are taking place in the 1930s. And of course, this is the time when you've got uh, Japan coming in and occupying parts of uh, China and sitting on the fringes of Shanghai for much of the 1930s because Shanghai has, very, has foreign quarters. And so at, the, at one point, Japan was at war with China, but they didn't want to... They didn't want to make all the other foreign powers angry, so they left Shanghai alone because they, you know, they didn't want to go into the French Quarter and some of these other places and, and get everybody angry at them at once. Of course, they eventually did, um, and this is as World War II escalated. And so this story kind of takes place during that time, and it goes through shifting loyalties between, you know, how are they going to balance, how, what's the balance of power between being loyal to country and having to deal with these Japanese occupiers. And we've seen this kind of stuff before in a lot of movies recently. Um, so this is very familiar familiar territory. Um, the, the interesting thing here is because you've got Chow Yun-fat's character and his main love interest's character, they're played by two different actors. So you've got Chow Yun-fat as the older character and Huang Xiaoming as the younger character. And, but everybody else basically plays the same character. So when the young Chen Dachi, played by Huang Xiaoming, meets Sammo, it's Sammo. And then later, when he's Chow Yun-fat, it's still Sammo. And they don't really go through, you know, a lot of aging makeup or anything. So Chow ages terribly. <laughs> and everybody else kind of stays the same. Um, and the same is true of a, 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 another love interest who Chow's character eventually ends up marrying because he's separated from his original true love. Um, so that's kind of funny, but all right, seriously, this is a Wang Jing film, but he really did put some effort into this film. Um, I haven't seen this kind of effort come from Wang Jing in a long time in terms of uh, trying to get, you know, good looks, good effects, and some serious acting. You know, he's got some heavy hitters here with these three main leads, um, even though Chow Yun-fat is only in about half of the movie, because a lot of the story jumps back and it jumps back and forth between the 1930s and 1913, 14, and 15. So I'd say Huang Xiaoming gets a sizable chunk of the screen time as the main character, Cheng Dachi. And I'm guessing it's because Chow Yun-fat is so expensive, they could only afford to pay him for half the movie. Um, so that's why he doesn't have as much screen time. But even so, um, it's still it's still interesting to watch. I... I, I I wasn't as bored as I thought I might be because I know we've seen this kind, these kind of stories before in this kind of time period before, so there's not a lot new there. Um, but I, I do think that the way they, as I mentioned, the way they deal with crime is quite funny because they're supposed to be on the sort of the seedy side of life, but they're straight, you know. They, they say, oh, we're going to get rid... We, we, we don't do drugs and no, no prostitution and no gambling. So how are they so rich? We just don't know. Right. They just uh, they're they're kind of towing this line because it's trying. I know it's they're doing it because it's trying to be China friendly. Um, so that that aspect is a little bit humorous. Um, and if you can get beyond the fact that it's yet another film about the Japanese occupation, um, it is interesting to see these actors on the screen together. There are some parallels to older Wang Jing films. I mean, you've got Chow Yun-fat here. You know, he's kind of this iconic image. 
You know, he is the god of gamblers. It was another Wong Jing film back in the day. And here he also, in, in much the same vein, he's got this right-hand bodyguard who's sort of a, you know, a, 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 he's, he's a martial arts expert, but his knives is his really big thing. And he had a similar, you know, there's a similar kind of relationship with the bodyguard he had in, god, in the God of Gamblers movies. Um, so I don't know if that's like an intentional throwback to that film or it's just something that Wong Jing felt familiar with. So he wanted to work with that kind of a relationship between characters again. Uh, technically, there, there are quite a few long circular dolly shots where Chow Yun-Fat is just sitting on a chair and the camera's just kind of zooming around him. They do this like two or three times. Um, and so it's like even less dialogue, you know, it's less of Chow Yun-Fat speaking, him just more of him just sitting in a chair being cool. Um, and that might work for some people. It's all, it's all right if you like Chow Yun-Fat. Sammo gets shirtless a couple times. And let me say, well, that's not something that we need to see a lot of screen time of. I mean, I love Sammo, but... Uh, he's, he's up there in age and, uh, he's also up there in weight. So, uh, there's probably a bit too much of that, that we didn't need to see. Um, didn't really care too much about the love story. There is a bit of a love triangle here, um, because the, his old flame comes back into it and it ties into some of the politics of what's going on. And, uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen these, these aspects between the occupation and, and opera performers, and love triangles, and it's been done better in some places. I'm thinking films like Forever Enthralled, for example. Um, but overall, I mean, just seeing some of the, you know, some of these these guys together, especially Chow Yun Fat doing a Wong Jing film, I was just happy for that, and and so I was okay with a lot of what was going on. Um, and I'd say there were some minor characters here that I would have liked to see some more screen time with, for example. Um, the main character's best friend, who's, you know, sort of this chubby guy. You see him a couple times in the 19, in 1913 and 1914, and you see him every once in a while in the 1930s, and he seemed to be a pretty interesting character. I would have liked some more uh, time focused on him, uh, as well as the girl who ends up becoming Chai Yun-Fat's wife. Um, his relationship with her, I think, um, was a lot more complex, and also Samuel Hung's wife, Who's sort of like the the, uh, the 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 triad's mother, basically? She's got a very important role in the film, and, and it seems like she needed more screen time as well. Um, and the the whole film ends. I won't give. A, I won't spoil the ending, but the whole film ends with a Jackie Chung song. I mean, what a cheap shot, Wang Jing. I mean, if you want to try and capture a traditionalist like me. You know, and, and 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 get us right in the gut. You throw in a Jackie Chung song, and you've kind of sold the deal. Um, <laughs> so I'd say, yeah, it's still great to have Chow back doing what we could say is mostly a Hong Kong movie. Um, you know, it's certainly a, a big improvement over Confucius. And for that alone, I would say see it. Um, so now, Kevin, you can't really talk about it. Yeah, I can't really talk about it because I actually. Technically, it feels like I've seen the movie like 10 times by now because um, back in May, I started translating the script for, for overseas sale and, and um, I did the subtitles in the film. So I've actually seen about two or three different versions of the same film already. So I can't really talk about the quality or even, even the, what I read. So I shouldn't talk about it. But I will offer some tidbits mm -hmm. um, that, that we might have missed. Um, first of all, this is the first film to feature Chan Fat in a Cantonese-speaking role since um uh well actually it's the first time he speaks he spoke in cantonese on the big screen 
since uh, Pirates, the third Pirates of the Caribbean film, where he had one Cantonese line. Um, but uh, as far as uh, Cantonese speaking, because he never, he actually never dubbed the Cantonese versions of his own uh, mainland films in the last couple of years, including Confucius or Let the Bullets Fly. So this is the first time we actually hear Chan Fact speak Cantonese on screen in a Cantonese role since Peace Hotel wow. in 1995. Man, that's ages ago. That is ages ago. So this is why you should see this movie. Um, to hear, to hear Chan Fast speak Cantonese in a Cantonese speaking role, even though he actually spoke Mandarin on set, but even to hear him do an entire movie in Cantonese, that's already worth it. Okay. Um, and to actually be surprised at how much um, the story sticks to, uh, because it's actually based on a real character, a real Shanghai gangster named Du Yuesheng. Um, Yuesheng as in uh, Y U E. S-H-E-N-G, if you look him up, um, there's a lot of actually parallels to his life, even though it's never really explicitly his story um, because of the name changes and because he was a very controversial character. Uh, a lot of it, uh, the basic elements of his life are actually in the film, including the fact that he used to work at a, at a, at a fruit stall um, and, and the stuff about his life in Shanghai and, and turning to the na- uh, working with the Nationalist Army and turning into a, a patriot against the Japanese. A lot of these actually are from, from uh, history. And hmm. I think uh, Manfred Wong and uh, other, the other third screenwriter uh, helped out with that. Um, what else? Uh, I think those are the two two main tidbits uh, that are interesting about the film. Uh, but uh, even without reviewing the film, I would just say see it. Because, yeah. you know, my name's in it. Yeah, you'll see. Kevin Ma right there in the, in the credits. Yes, but it, it is a very interesting... Uh, actually, it is kind of an interesting film. Um, no matter what I thought of it, it's at least very intriguing. And like Paul says, it has a Jackie Chan song. Um, it has really huge explosions. It had gangsters. Uh, it has Shanghai. It's big sets. It's the biggest thing Chang- uh, Wang Jing's done in years. And you know those those things are interesting. I hope yeah. that those are interesting enough for people to watch it. And uh, yeah, I hope it finds an audience. And a couple, couple side notes too. I mean, the screening we were at, we were of course watching the very famous Dynasty Theater. Um, it seemed like they bust in about a hundred people to to watch the film. <laughs> uh, because after the movie started, just like these waves and waves of people came in, and it, and I made a comment that it was like almost like field trip, uh, because nowhere near we we normally know we have nowhere near that size of an audience, and usually nobody coming in late uh, to the movie like that. So it makes me wonder if uh, there were some massive ticket giveaways, or, or they were part of a tour, or, or what was going on with that. I think there were just one huge group of kids because they were outside the cinema after we watched it, so. You know, if if they were having a you know a weekend out and and part of that weekend is watching the last uh, Hong Kong film, hey, why not? Uh, maybe I don't know. It just seems weird that they show up at the Dynasty. Um, but uh, I think the other point too that I kept thinking about is, what did Wong Jing have to do to get Chai Yun Fat back? I mean, has has Chai Yun Fat's song star sunk so low because of recent turkeys that he's done that he is willing to, you know, come back and work with Wong Jing, or I mean, because this is I mean. You know, this is Wong Jing. The movies he's been doing of late, you know, things like Men Suddenly in Love, you know, have not been these uh, huge, big budget uh, films. I mean, even for Wong Jing, right? Well, because um, Wong Jing <laughs> is trying to develop his career in two directions. Mm-hmm. Um, for China, he would do big, big, big films for China and he would direct them. And uh, and then for smaller local Hong Kong films, he'll put his name as as producers and hand them off to younger directors. Like his, uh, he's already producing. Uh, he's already, of course the Young and Dangerous. 
Yeah. Um, a uh, the new a new Wilson Chin film. Those are uh, starring Chapman Toe. Those are the small budget local films that he put his name on and get help get made. While he directs all the big big um, mainland projects for big companies, you know, like actually he's working with Pony Bona again, who also bankrolled uh, uh, um, Treasure Inn. So I I think I think um, what Wang Jing did was that because this this project was apparently in the in the works for a while, and uh, and also. Um, uh, because he has the, the the support of a huge corporation like Polly Bona, who's also be, behind a uh, Flying Sword Dragon Gate and Simple Life, um, and and uh, so I'm guessing that's how that's why he got. I'm sure I'm sure Wang Jing wanted to work with Chai for years, uh, and this this project is big enough that uh, and they pay him enough that uh, I guess he, he he just jumped at the chance. Hmm. Um, well, the bigger big biggest uh, selling point actually in China is that um, because Chai Fat one of Chai Fat's most iconic role was uh, in the the Bund. Uh, a 1970s TV series uh, where he plays a, a Shanghai gang, a very famous Shanghai gangster, a fictional character, of course. And then later in a, in a China TV remake of that or same story, Quan Xiaoming played Chan Fat's character. Hmm. So in a sense, yes, it is the two generations of the same character, which is probably why they casted um, the two actors in the same role. Yeah, it's um, a little meta. But I'll, I'll say this, Wang Xiaoming did, did a very convincing young Chow Yun-Fat, I would say. I think so. I think I think the problem with Quan Xiao Ming is not his acting, but rather his kind of has charisma, but not really like a down to earth charisma. He has a very much a big star thing that I don't think would really develop into something great until um, for maybe another five ten years. But yeah, I, I think he has um, I think he has he, he did well in the film here. He has a very potentially juicy role, and I, I think he he did his best. Uh, and yeah, you're right. He he did have little shades of a huge movie star like Chang Fat. Right. Well, let us move on to talk about another big China film right now, and that is Lost in Thailand. Now, um, this has not been opened in Hong Kong, and it's probably not going to open for at least a couple months here, uh, maybe, you know, some somewhere in the middle of the year, if we're lucky. Um, but, Kevin, you went across the border to Shenzhen, and you watched it, so uh, tell us your thoughts. Yes, uh, Lost in Thailand is uh, already now past the 1 billion RMB mark, so it has far, far outgrossed the highest uh, grossing Chinese film ever, uh, Painted Skin Resurrection. So now this is the, essentially the uh, avatar of China or something, which actually is very, very strange to say. Um, yeah, anyway, um, Lost in Thailand, a couple of background. Uh, it is the thematic sequel to Lost on Journey, um, a film made two years ago, com- a road comedy. Um, that is essentially a Chinese take on planes, trains, and automobiles. Um, that film was directed by Hong Kong director Raymond Yip, who you may know as the director for Bad Boys Only, and produced by Manfred Wong, the, the guy behind um, The Last Tycoon we just talked about, and also the Young and Dangerous series, and also wrote uh, Storm Riders and The Man Kong Hero, two very uh, Hong Kong filmmakers uh, go- making a really local Chinese uh, road comedy. And it was kind of a minor hit. It also stars Xu Jen, who you re- may remember as the best man ever in Love and the Buff, and uh, Wang Baochang, who is you know everyone's favorite simpleton? Um, so so in a way, so um, Xu Jen was playing the the Steve Martin kind of straight man character, while Wang Baochang was the fool, the kind of John Candy type uh, comedy comic relief, and that film was um was quite a, a modest hit in in China. So of course um they decided to make a thematic sequel. So it's actually not a narrative continuation at all. It's a totally different story, totally different characters, but they do reunite Xu Jen and um, Wang Baochang again. Um, and this time, Shujin is taking the director's chair for the first time. 
as one of the free writers and also the director in his auto, uh, directorial debut. And also joining the fun is uh, Huambo. Um, so the story, uh, it's about a, um, a researcher uh, named uh, Xu Lan, played by Xu Jin. Uh, in the beginning of the film, he, he helped develop a new um, uh, a petroleum enhancer named Supergas. Essentially, the, 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 the idea of it is that you put a couple of drops in it and it automatically creates or expands the volume of, of gasoline so it becomes this really cheap uh, energy alternative. So it's a, it's a big ticket to career uh, successful career. So um, despite the warning of his wife who is about to divorce him, he decides to um, go to Thailand because he needs to get his boss's um, signature on the letter of attorney. So he has the right to continue developing the chemical, and that's his big ticket to success. Um, but of course, the trouble is that he has a, a rival at work named Galbo, played by Huambo, uh, who also wants the letter of attorney signed so he can actually sell the technology and, and make the big cash so he can um, provide for his wife and, and his uh, soon-to-be-born baby. So... Um, Shulan is running, runs off to Thailand and trying to avoid Gaobo. Uh, but in the journey, uh, he runs into Wanbo, Huanbao, played by Wanbao Chang, who is a simpleton uh, who owns an onion cake shop and um, is, is his b- first big overseas trip uh, and is really excited and he wants to take lots of pictures and he's, he, he actually claims that his wife is Fan Bingbing for some reason. Um, reasons that will be explained later on. But... Um, because of fate, uh, Shulan and, and Wanbao, they keep running into each other, um, especially because uh, Gaobo is, 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 is uh, close on Shulan's tail. So, it, so the, 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 the chase becomes kind of an adventure as um, Shulan loses his wallet and then you know, he needs Wanbao and you know, these kind of sitcom circumstances that send them on an adventure across Thailand, even with Gaobo um, uh, close on the tail. So it becomes a, both a road trip film and a chase film. Which is quite a clever uh, way of framing this, uh, you know, adding adding drama to the whole to the whole journey. Um, it's a very polished production. It costs thirty million, which is actually quite a bit for for a comedy because of the overseas shooting. Most of the film, almost entire film, is shot in Thailand. Um, there are a lot of pretty exotic locations, but um, well, the pleasant surprises is that the fi- film rarely feel xenophobic or or feels like it's mocking Thai culture at all because actually. Uh, a lot of uh, Asian films they have trouble doing is trying to keep that xenophobic view or the 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 mocking other culture, trying to keep that in check. And the film actually does that very well. Um, there is a lady boy joke, yes, and even a, a dirty foreigner joke, yes. But of course, this being a, a Chinese film, which means it's, it's approved by censors, is actually fairly clean. So you know what might be what you might think is like. Um, because at one point, the Shulan character is trying to sneak into Gaobo's room and, and steal his GPS, but then he sneaks into the wrong room and is stuck under the bed while a, uh, a white man uh, and two, two, uh, two women who, who think it's ladyboys, they're having fun on, on the bed. But you know, what you think is you know, the bed humping, you think you know, it's them having sex, it's actually them jumping on the bed. You know that kind of is, is kind of they always kind of go the dirty way, but they end up taking the the clean route. So the film is actually quite pleasant and and quite nice to the culture. Um, the three stars are great together, especially Jenna and Huang Bao Chang because they've already done this once and they have gay, great great chemistry, almost like gay chemistry. Uh, you could almost say that. Um, and of course, Huang Bao is is a great addition as the the villain type character. Um, the entire film is very calculated in terms of com- being a commercial comedy. It hits all the right notes, even with the emotion stuff. And uh, but it's superbly entertaining, 
and I laugh from beginning to end. It's very funny. Um, it's easy to see why it's a hit audiences, but I, I'm a little surprised to see that this, you know, really unassuming, you know, little road comedy becomes the most successful film in the history of Chinese cinema. Um, I guess it's because it's a combination of uh, good counter programming because um, while while this really really pleasant comedies in cinemas, you have you know three four other really dark violent action films you know like the guillotines and and uh, and uh, last tycoon and back to 1942 um and of course the good reputation from lost on journey they also built on that there are a lot of fans of that movie and um and you know it's it's a good film um the thing is it, it, it would it's very enjoyable but it won't add anything to the genre it's not a particularly groundbreaking round or road trip film or whatsoever um it's definitely not as crude um, it's just you know a very funny film, and it never tries to be anything that it isn't. You know, it doesn't have any pretensions. Uh, even the emotional stuff doesn't. It doesn't really hammer. They don't really hammer you over the head with it, like the the first film kind of did. Um, so so it's it's very much a unambitious film that is very successful at what it's trying to do, um, and I like that kind of film. Um, so definitely, if you have a chance, definitely check out Lost in Thailand. Uh, I I'm not sure what the hype the quote-unquote hype is but um just take it as a very solid entertaining commercial film and i think you'll like it a lot so how i mean i i do want to see it because i'm interested to see you know um what 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 has prompted this uh, to be so successful but i mean how does it compare to the wave of comedies that have kind of come out of, of china you know i'm thinking back to things like crazy stone or if you are the one, um, do you think it's going to carry through internationally like those films have? Or do you think that there's something more centrally Chinese in, in the humor and, and what's going on and that it might not appeal as much internationally? Actually, if anything, it has less local appeal than Lost on Journey because Lost on Journey is about um, the... the, the um, migration the the, the um Lunar new year migration right so it's something that's that's very particularly almost uh, uniquely chinese right that everyone goes through because they all work in a big city and all want to go home and they run into a lot of trouble that's a very local thing right but this is obviously a very commercial film that that would actually work universally you know because it has the dramatic a very strong dramatic element which is the you have a goal which is trying to to secede um and then you have the villain and a good guy and uh, the, the goal is very simple. And there's even a very universal message, which is essentially telling us to, you know, take the time to stop and smell the roses, which is a very universal message. Um, so, yes, I, I think it has, I think it's not really groundbreaking enough in the genre, but um, I think people will see why this is popular as opposed to something like, let's say like, mm, what am I thinking here? Let the bullets fly. You know, mm. it's not a film for everyone, right? Yeah. Um, it's all, almost very uniquely Chinese. Um, Painted Skin, you can say, appeals more to to foreign foreigners because of the the, the, the fantasy element. But this one, it, it it's really a film that can hit. That's almost appropriate for anyone from ten to even sixty five. Mm. It, it is a very broad comedy and is a very a fa- fairly family friendly comedy, um, and it will do very well as such. And it's not one of those things that only Chinese people would get because it's very, like I said, it's very universally. Um, the, the the dramatic stuff is very universal. The 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 ideas are very universal. So um, it won't. I don't think 
you know, it's not like uh, if you're the one, which is kind of, you know, it has the sushi, the sushi um, element or like Crazy Stone, which has the, you know, really um, twisty narrative. Mm. I think this is really solid commercial film that, you know, it's not going to be on any critics top 10 list, but um, it is one of those films that, you know, audiences enjoy and you can't really blame them for enjoying it because it is very much out to 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 um, for people to have fun with. All right. We'll look forward to it. And with that, I think it's time to move on and talk about our West Screen films. East Screen, West Screen. All right, we've got two West Screen films to cover this week to try and wrap up uh, some of the films of November and December. Up first, Les Miserables, the film based on the, what is it, the classic Broadway musical, which is uh, based on a novella or, or some other form of media, right? Uh, um, I don't know. The, the musical is based on the Victor Hugo novel. The Victor Hugo novel, that's right. Okay. Got some of my history, correct? Um, now, unfortunately, I have not gotten out to see this, and despite Kevin's raising of me earlier, I do want to get out and see it because I do like musicals, so I just haven't had the opportunity because it's a rather uh, long film. Um, so, Kevin, tell us about uh, Le Mis and your thoughts on it. Sure. Uh Les Mis is, uh, like I was saying, is, is, is based on the, the 1984 musical, which uh, in turn was uh, based on the, the Victor Hugo novel. Um, and the story, if you, you've heard the story probably, the story is essentially pretty much the same. Uh, it stars Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean, a uh, normal man who was imprisoned for 19 years because um, he stole a loaf of bread to feed his dying, dying nephew. And uh, he got five years in prison for that. And, uh, and then he got another 15 because he tried to escape. The, the film starts with him uh, just getting Perot um, with uh, Javert, uh, played by Russell Crowe, and handing him his Perot notice and telling him essentially that um, he will forever be, be known as a criminal and, and he will never have another chance at a normal life. And he has to live, a, uh, still has to live an upright uh, life, even though the, the whole society has shunned him because he was once, he's, a, he's a criminal. So Jean Valjean, after a um, incident in- involving a priest where he steals from a priest and a priest decides to have mercy on him and cover for him, he, he, ra- he suddenly grows a conscience and decides to drop his Jean Valjean identity to, to become a righteous man because it's the only way he can to become a successful, successful man. And then we jump nine years later when he, uh, Jean Valjean is now a um, successful factory owner and a mayor of a town. Um, and his uh, in his factory, there is a woman named uh, Fontaine, played by Anne Hathaway, um, who who has a daughter born out of wedlock named Cosette. Uh, and when his when her coworkers find out, she gets kicked out of the factory. Uh, of course, under Valjean's nose, because you know the, the foreman, all, all, all the essentially all the big capitalist characters are evil. <laughs> so Fontaine is, is forced to sell herself on the street um, to essentially pay for her daughter's uh, upbringing. Uh, even though the people who are taking care of, of Cosette are, you know, uh, played by Helena Bonham Carter and, and Sasha Baron Cohen are abusing her and using her to, to work, uh, essentially using her slave labor for the, for the inn. Um, of course, Fantine never knows that. And, um, and uh, in the, in the, when she hits rock bottom, uh, Jean Valjean saves her, uh, tries to save her and promises to take care of her daughter. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, Javert uh, reappears and uh, notices that 
uh, this mayor seems to be, you know, very familiar with this one guy who who broke his parole uh, nine years ago and and decides and uh, being the 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 man of justice that he is decides to uh, uh, hunt him uh, until the, the end of his days, essentially. Uh, so the story that's kind of the just the first half of the story, and that's really just the first act. It's a very long story, um, and the rest you can just read on Wikipedia anyway because the story is quite well known. Uh, you're not really watching this one for the for the story because uh, it's been around for so long. So you're here for the music, and uh, I've never seen a musical, uh, so this is the first time. Of course, I've heard you know I Dream the Dream, you know that one is is quite famous. Some of the more famous pieces you might have heard already. Um, and this is a true musical, as in everyone is singing out their lines, and they're singing it out live on set, which is kind of a not a not the first time in history of cinema because apparently uh, a few other films have done this. But this um, very um, interesting idea is that the everyone is singing their lines live on set uh, with a earpiece in their ear and with a mic on them. Um, so the cast really have to be trained. In, in that kind of uh, performance. So it was quite obvious that Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway have done theater just from their, the way they perform and, and their voice. Anne Hathaway, especially her, her rendition of I Dream the Dream, um, will get too many people. Uh, even I choked up a little bit um, at that. Um, and it's obvious that they, they've done musical theaters because, you know, from, from that, the way they, they perform and they're both, they, go, they both give really great performances. And it's also obvious that Russell Crowe hasn't done any musical theater because, um, yeah, the way he sings is very kind of forced, almost uh, like, like he, he doesn't, he's too manly to, to get into that musical theater crap. So he sings like he's trying to forcing out the line. So it's very, it's kind of unintentional comedy to hear Russell Crowe do his musical theater act. Uh, he has two solo songs, which is <laughs> kind of strange. Um, but yeah, sing, the singing live thing is a great idea because it forces the performers to essentially um, act while singing and it intensifies their performance because they're trying to hit these high notes and it amplifies the emotions of the characters by so much. And um, it, I think it's a great idea for a musical. Um, so the sets are great. The actors are great. The music is great. But the directing went Oh, so horribly wrong. Um, the film is directed by Tom Hooper, who, who last did uh, The King's Speech, which I think many of you have seen. Um, the problem is that Hooper kind of developed a look, a look, a specific look in The King's Speech, you know, the way he uses a lot of close-ups and, uh, and, and uh, not, not so much handheld, but the way he frames the shot are very much great for drama, very interesting for drama, but... But um, for Les Miserables, I think he wanted the, the really gritty look because it's a very a story about the people and it's a story that takes place on a street and it's about the poor. So he wanted a, a very gritty look and a very gritty handheld camera kind of look and, and using a lot of close-ups. And it becomes really distracting when you know in a film where everyone is singing their lines instead of speaking. So it continued, it, it kept knocking me out of the movie, you know, because I'm not sure which reality I'm trying to take because you're kind of in a in a in a enhanced or elevated reality when everyone's saying their lines, but the film keeps telling you that this is real, this is gritty, and this is you know really intense, and it's really dark, and it's really down to earth. But and in fact, the story or the way that the story is being told isn't on that level. So the close-ups was really were really distracting, and I want I keep wanting to see more and more and more of the sets, more of the people. Uh, I want to see a scale of the film, but Hooper kept doing this close-up thing it kept showing me less and less and less 
Um, and I never really got to feel the scale of the story. It's almost too intimate for such an epic story. Um, Universal apparently forced Hooper to to keep the keep the film under 150 minutes, and he did because the film is 158 with credits. Uh, so the story did end that does end 150 minutes, um, and and you know he could blame that all he wants, uh, maybe at the the pacing of the film, but in the end, it really has to do with the cinematography and the way Hooper chooses to capture the story. Um, so Tom Hooper either needs a new cinematographer or he shouldn't be directing a musical. Uh, it was a very strange, jarring choice. And, um, you know, that is really the one big thing that really stuck up because everything is so strong. I mean, the, the soundtrack stuck with me for days. I bought the soundtrack after I saw the film and I, I'm thinking of going to watch it again just for the music and for the performances. But the directing it really hurt the film in the end. Um, so, so it's really... A shame that you know he went with that direction and it, 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 it was such a it, 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 I wouldn't say ruined the film but it really it really did hurt the film in the end otherwise everything is very strong um, this kind of film is you know it's not really entertaining but it is a very uh, big film you know the music is like I said the music's great the actor's great and the sets are great um, and I think it's well worth watching if you if you're okay with musicals and I think it's worth watching uh, for the music and the actors so we can ignore the directing stuff, and many people will because you know, especially fans of musical, they just want to see how these actors perform the music. They'll be fine with it, and um, so in that sense, it's definitely see it. Uh, any chance of this becoming like a cult and like the Rocky Horror Picture Show with people dressing up and going up in front of the screen? And I, I don't know about a cult thing. Because <laughs> this film was very popular already. Yeah, it's already made a lot of money across the world. Um, well, also, I guess Mamma Mia. I don't, I don't, I don't see this film as like a Mamma Mia where people would sing along because it's such a sad film and mm. not even, you know, in a tongue in cheek way. You know, you have people, you know, it's about people living in, in poverty and uh, the revolution and many people dying and, you know, struggling against oppression and things like that. It, it's gonna, it, it will strike a chord, especially with Hong Kong, especially with some of the political, um, political environment of Hong Kong right now. And it's gonna have a lot of fans here. Um, but I think it's it's very much a serious film that doesn't really earn the the um, anything that's not serious. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to trying to uh, to get out and see it at some point. Uh, trying to sit in the back row because I sat in the fifth row and the close the problem with the close ups were I wouldn't say it was dizzy or anything, but the close up issue was was worse for me because I was sitting so far up in front. Yeah, I mean, does does a film because a musical like this is going to have intermission, right? And in the old days, films did too. Does do you think a film like this, or you know, these when we push films like to three hours, or even some of the Bollywood stuff, right? Would would it be better to bring back intermissions, give people you know ten fifteen minutes to go out to the lobby, get some more popcorn? I mean, it would it would probably be a boon for the movie theater business, right? Uh, selling popcorn and coke. Um, but, it wouldn't because actually then they they have to they they get because all theaters care about is scheduling shows, more shows because right. They, but they, but I mean at least in the U.S. My, unless it's changed from when I worked at theaters, theaters got a very small cut of the actual ticket sales. It was they made their monies off popcorn and drinks and and hot dogs. I think theoretically it makes sense, but for the cinemas, it's about packing the seats because. Yeah. For them, it's one less one less show because yeah. um, the film. I think the distributor is intentionally not adding shows 
to keep up demand or to to make sure to create this demand, this continuous demand, so that the film runs for a while. Um, and for cinemas in Hong Kong, it's always been. Uh, Remember, films have to be always under two hours, always be at a hundred minutes, so that the theaters could schedule a show every two hours. Yeah, it's always. I think. I think the the split here isn't as bad as it is in America. I think it's fifty fifty, if not a little more than that. So for them, attendance is much more important than concession because they know that Hong Kongers will bring food in anyway. Because you know it's such a, con- a convenient city, so everyone will bring food in. So you can't expect many people to buy, go and buy concessions anyway. Did uh, Anne Hathaway ever say, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us? <laughs> I mean, that would be great, you know, to sing it, you know, for the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like all right. Uh, well, speaking of singing it, let's move on and sing the praises of yet another West Screen film. Um, this is the latest film from Disney, an animated feature, that is, uh, Wreck-It Ralph. Um, this film tells the story of a video game villain named Ralph, uh, who plays the villain role in a game called Fix-It Felix Jr. Uh, And basically, his job is to destroy stuff. Um, Within the game, he's responsible for going up and destroying uh, parts of the building, and uh, Fix-It Felix Jr. comes in with his magic hammer and saves the day. Well, that's sort of Ralph's day job when when the game's actually running. Uh, but when the game's off in his regular life, he kind of wishes, you know, he could be liked. Nobody likes him because he's a villain. And despite going to villain counseling, um, he can't seem to find a sense of himself. So he decides he wants to become a hero. He wants to go out and win a medal like the heroes of games do. And he thinks that this will bring him the much-needed love and respect um, that he so longs for. And so this basically sets up the premise of Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, Ralph decides he's going to quit being a villain, and he's going to go off and try and win a medal um, by hopping over to some other games. Um, <clears throat> now, when, when I first uh, started hearing some, some early buzz and some feedback and some reviews about this film, um, I, I'd heard that it wasn't that great, and, and particularly from some people who I know that are that are gamers who also do, um, cover films, um, they didn't really like it. So I kind of put it off. I kind of wasn't, you know, that excited about getting out and seeing it. Um, the trailers that they ran for it made it look kind of kitty, uh, kind of kiddish. And, and I thought, eh, you know, I'll, I'll see it when I see it. But man, was I wrong. I really loved this movie. Um, and it was made for me. It was made for Gen, Gen Xers from my generation who really kind of grew up um, with video arcades in their heyday. Um, if you, if you, if you never had that experience of, of going in and and spending an afternoon and lining up quarters in a video arcade, I think you could still like this movie, but there's so much from that era that's packed into here. So many references, um, that it's, it's really, I feel like, like it's kind of a love letter. Uh, to people, uh, Gen Xers in my generation, who, specifically who are gamers. Uh, at its heart, it is sort of a combination of Tron and Toy Story, because yes, you have what you have is when the lights go out and the people go away, you've got uh, these characters have lives of their own, and they talk and they socialize, and they've got personalities that exist beyond that of, of the game. 
Um, and, and it's tr like Tron in a way in that you've got this whole society that exists, this sort of digital society. Um, but there are lots of cultural references. There are a lot of great references to video games that I'm sure kids today have never heard of, right? I mean, who's heard of Qbert? <laughs> I doubt anybody in the post-80s or post-90s generations probably even know what Qbert is. Um, but, uh, you know, I loved it. And, and it's got an excellent voice cast, including Sarah Silverman, who I don't really like that all that much. But she was great um, as... Um, um, uh, what was her character? Uh, Vanellope von Schweetz, uh, a character that Ralph ends up uh, kind of palling up with in uh, in this uh, sort of a, a takeoff of a, you know, sort of the Mario Kart racing game called Sugar Rush. Um, and the film, interestingly enough, was directed by Rich Moore. This is his first feature film. Um, and as I looked over his directing credits, he's got a, he's done a lot of work on The Simpsons. Um, and uh, he did, uh, some, some of the episodes of Futurama, especially a couple of my favorite episodes, like Anthology of Interest. Um, he also directed Roswell that ends well and the musical, uh, episode of Futurama Hell is, uh, is other robots. I think that was the musical one. Um, but, uh, you know, I really like the work that he's done, you know, in Futurama Simpsons. And so I think he really kind of nails a lot of stuff down here in terms of the look and the feel especially as Ralph starts to jump into other games. Each will have its own sort of visual style, its own tempo. Um, and then you've got Ralph kind of like standing out because he's he's from a, a sort of a different game. And even some of the supporting characters, like um, the, the um, I can't remember what they, they, they called them, but the people who inhabit uh, the tower that Ralph goes in and destroys, um, the way they move is very much like little 8-bit characters, even though... Um, they, they, you know, they're, they're represented with modern CGI, their motions and their movements are a bit jerky compared with other, some of the, some of the more newer characters and the way that, uh, so for example, Fixit Felix Jr. looks in comparison with, um, the commander character, um, played by Jane Lynch, um, her name is, uh, Sergeant Tamora. Um, you know, they, they're two completely different styles, but they're kind of sort of brought together in this space and, and it, you'd think it wouldn't work, but it kind of does. Um, so that's really nice. Um, I think one of the standout moments for me, though, is uh, is Alan uh, Tiduk, who's... Uh, some people, if you've seen the show Firefly, um, will recognize him as Walsh from Firefly. Um, he plays, and I would never have guessed this was him, he plays King Candy, who is sort of the king of the Sugar Rush world. And he's channeling the voice of Ed Wynn. Now, you've really got to go back... <laughs> to know who Edwin is. He is this actor. He was in a lot of Disney stuff back in the day. He was the toy maker in Babes in Toyland. And he had this very sort of specific voice. And the whole time I'm watching King, King Candy, I'm thinking, my God, that's Edwin. And then it turns out to be this guy from, you know, Firefly. I'm thinking, I never had no idea he could do, you know, this kind of a voice. And and that, that kind of floored me when I found that out. Um, and... You know, it's it was just a fun, charming movie. It's got a it's got a good soundtrack. I went out and bought the soundtrack after watching this movie. I mean, where else are you gonna get, um, you know, a song from Owl City, um, an old song from Cool and the Gang? You've got Skrillex in here, uh, Rihanna, and the Japanese group uh, AKB48, which I think Kevin, you were just uh, watching the other night, right? On <laughs> on uh, New Year's Eve, yeah. um, and you know, it's got all different kinds of music. I mean. I mean, just listen to the, the the Sugar Rush song. It's 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 sickly sweet, but somewhat addicting, right? 
popping up here. So yeah, I mean, they've got this Japanese song playing in the game, and it goes along with it because, you know, uh, you know, the, a lot of these games came from Japanese companies, um, and you get cameos from a lot of different video game characters in here. Uh, of course, you know, it's not a perfect film. There were some missed opportunities for, for sure. There could have been other, other things they did to generate humor, but you've got, you know, characters like Sonic and Pac-Man, um, Zangief, uh, shows up from Street Fighter. The, my one disappointment was, and I blame this on Hong Kong promos of the film, is that I thought Chun-Li was going to have a big role in this. And she's there, but she's just in the background. She doesn't actually have any speaking roles. But, I mean, on several of the the, the posters promoing this in Hong Kong, she's like one of the central characters, and I'm thinking she's going to have a big part in it, and uh, unfortunately she didn't. Maybe in the sequel. Um, but, yeah, it's I really liked this film a lot. I can't wait to see it again. And if you're a Gen Xer and you spent time in arcades, don't go by what the trailer shows you. If you're somebody who still likes video games like I do, um, you've got to see this film. Uh, I think it's, for me, one of the, probably the best animated film of the year. The biggest surprise, at least. Kevin? Okay. Um, I'm not a huge gamer, but yes, I did have, you know, I did spend my time in, in the arcade. Um when I was young and play, I played my share of games. So I got so a lot of the game references, um, including the 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 when uh there was a scene where where Wreck It Ralph is I think uh, looking through the lost and found and found the uh the exclamation mark from Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> that was awesome! <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, so these little 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 um reference. I didn't. I don't know what Cubert is. I'm sorry. And and the whole thing of Edwin, I also didn't get that, um. So so I didn't get those. But yeah, it, it's kind of like a really much a gamer's film. Uh, those who are just older than me or same age as me, and younger than maybe our, my parents, um, it's perfect for those people. But um, yes, the kids around me when I was at my screening, I think they were bored silly. They had no idea what was going on. I think uh, on the surface, it's not really fun enough for kids. But for us, you know, we we get it. You know. We're not in the we're no we're from a generation who actually used to have to go out to play games, and you know and we know the different games and when they all these games you know uh, existing in the same venue or the same house you kind of this is kind of the stuff the fantasy that one might come up with. It's not like today where everyone plays at home or on a computer and they just talk online and everyone's in the game. You know that that's silly. Sorry, I, I prefer the arcade. Um, so so it's a very interesting uh, interesting uh, whirlwind games concept. Um, the, the writing is very funny. There's a lot of funny lines, especially from uh, Jane Lynch. Uh, I think again her her lines kind of a lot of people just it flew over a lot of people's heads. But I love how quick and full away they were. And also, um, I don't know the actress name, but Kenneth from from Thirty Rock. Oh uh, yeah, um, Fix uh, Felix. Jack Jack McBrayer. Yeah. Yes, loved it, loved it, loved it. He was perfect. Uh, I, it was great. Um, the plot felt less fresh once, you know, Ralph enters the Sugar Rush world and this, the story is kind of stuck there. Um, until the, so it was kind of for me the more fun was the uh, Fix of Felix and, and and the the, the Sergeant storyline there. 
Um, but it was still really great fun to watch. Eh? You know, seeing all these games coming together and the way the, the, the world, just seeing the world, the way the world works, it, it's actually really great. Um, but it's still, you know, it's fun. It's family friendly, um, even though not particularly suitable for kids, but because, you know, they might be bored. Um, and I was surprisingly touched by the end um, because it, in the end, it's a friendship tale. And, you know, it's really sweet at the end. Um, uh, so, yeah, definitely I see it. If you if you're at a certain age, you know, if you played games in the arcade before, definitely this is your a movie to see it. I think you would love it. Yeah. Um there there was one there was one tiny reference and I don't know if people in the states would have gotten this. I don't know, maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, but um uh John DiMaggio who plays uh Bender on Futurama and he does a lot of uh, video game voices. Uh he's the voice of uh uh, Phoenix in um, Gears of War, and and he, he's a well-known voice actor. Um, but he he does the voice of Beard Papa, who's a security guard at uh, this place where they they make these uh, candy go karts, basically. And it took me I, I didn't notice it at first, and then they kind of show back, and and there's a, there's a gag about it. But Beard Papa is the 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 uh, the icon or the logo. Of this cream puff uh, company, it's name yes, it's the name of the cream puff. Yeah, shop. that they have here in Hong Kong. Now I don't know. I don't don't know. Do they have these over in the, in the states? I mean, maybe in California. I've never seen one in Florida. Yeah, there's definitely one in. Uh, there's one in San Francisco. Okay, yeah, because I was like, really? I mean, I, I didn't. I thought I knew they were in Asia. I didn't think they had made it over to the states. Um, and th- that kind of made me laugh. Just so many weird, just weird references all throughout. Um, that uh, weren't just didn't seem just specific to only American video game culture that I thought I really really liked. So, all right, I think that's going to wrap things up for our Westrian films. So let me play this. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. You know, the one thing they didn't really address in Wreck-It Ralph was in that world, it's like there's only one of every character. You know what I'm saying? So right. It's like, what if you had two Wreck-It Ralph machines or five Wreck-It Ralph machines, which was very often the case in the video arcades that I went to. You know, you wouldn't just have one machine. You'd have two or three next to each other. Well, um, even the racing one, um, even in the, the Sugar Rush in the film, there were two or three machines. Well, were there? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah, yeah. Didn't but I guess part. they all connect into one yeah. big game world, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, good stuff. Um, so, yeah, we've got uh, comments. We got a, a nice comment from a longtime listener uh, named David who wrote in. He said, uh, Hi, Paul, Kevin. I've been a longtime listener to the show. Just wanted to let you guys know that you guys are doing a great job. Keep up the good work. And if things work out, my wife and I will be visiting Hong Kong soon. Um, and he sent along a token of his appreciation fan art. We got Yay. some fan art. Um, and actually, I, I do have to apologize because I wrote back to him and I said, I, this is our first fan art. He says, no, I sent you guys some before. Um, and actually, I went back through the archives and yes, he did. He sent us uh, some fan art of um, 
the child from Murderer. <laughs> and uh, he sent us uh, some Charlie Cho fan art as Category 3 Man. Uh, and that was so long ago that I'd it just vanished from my ever-aging memory. Um, but this time he did send us some actual fan art of us. Uh, he sent a, a portrayal of me and uh, Mr. Ma together. And very nicely done. I'll try and uh, put that up on the site for all to see. And I will direct everyone over to his own blog. He has a blog where he puts up... Uh, you know, comments and thoughts about Hong Kong film and and some of the other art sketches that he does from time to time. And that is called milkywaywonderland.wordpress.com. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. A big thanks to David for uh, all the support over the years and for continuing to listen to us ramble on about Hong Kong film. I also have to thank uh, David for, for drawing me thinner than I am in real life. Yeah. But you've got a New Year's resolution, right, too? It's not really resolution if I'm already, you know, visiting the gym regularly. So, so it's, there's less chance that I would break it because it's not really a resolution. It's okay. Like a, yeah, good. Um, so you will look like your picture by year's end. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, hopefully, I won't because I'll have a lot more hair, <laughs> much more hair than I need. Um, all right, I think that's going to do it, folks. If you'd like to be a part of the show, of course, you can get in touch with us over at our website at www.concast.com. Uh, or over at iTunes. We'd love to hear from you there. Um, you can stop by iTunes and uh, leave us a short review or give us five, four, three, two, or even one star. Let us know what you like or what you'd like to see changed. Um, you can get us over on Twitter, twitter.com slash Kongcast for show updates. Um, you can follow me at Twitter, twitter.com slash Foxlore. Um, but I do urge you to follow Mr. Ma over at twitter.com slash Rock. Uh, he often tweets about Hong Kong news, uh, mainland China news, news about films from all throughout Asia. Um, so please do follow him. And occasionally he live blogs, uh, live tweets some stuff. Uh, so find out uh, what he's up to over there. You can get in touch with us also through email. That's gmail, eastscreen at gmail.com. And again, you can you know drop us a question, a comment, a fan art. If you so desire, we love to get all kinds of creative stuff like that. It really keeps us motivated and, and makes us know that you guys are out there, and we really appreciate it. Uh, you can also hit us over on Facebook, facebook.com slash eastswests, and also on Google+. I've actually started a uh, film community called Chinese Language Films uh, over on Google+, and not a whole lot of people in there right now. Uh, but if you're interested, uh, drop over and uh, join up the community. We'll be trying to make that much more active as time goes on. Sort of a soft rollout right now. But, um, you know, if you're interested in coming in and, uh, you know, uh, putting up information or comments or reviews over there, that's the place uh, we're going to try and have more of a presence on Google as well. Also, if, like David, you're going to be coming to Hong Kong in the near future and you'd like to head out with us to one of our very famous Love HK film uh, movie nights or movie matinees, which we have from time to time, uh, do drop me a line over at uh, Google Plus, and I'll make sure that you're included uh, in whatever we have lined up for the time you're going to be here. Um, so yeah, you can also catch us over on Stitcher, listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, if you still have those, and your WebOS phones. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio, and we thank them for their support of our little show. Additional thanks go out to Rob Gobbers of Schnauzer Studios for our theme, Ross Chan of lovehkfilm.com uh, for keeping us organized and helping us out with movie nights. Of course, the K-Man for sticking with me for 135, soon to be 136 episodes, 
And of course, all of you, the listeners, for being here with us in whatever form you choose each and every week, whether you're among the gents who are in the chat room with us live or you listen to us in podcast form. Uh, We like that you're there and we appreciate that you're listening. Next show, 136. Um, Looks like we're going to jump back and talk about another 2012 film, one we were going to talk about this week, but we decided to hold off till next week because I haven't had a chance to see it yet. And that is uh, the film Guillotines. So we'll talk about that, and that should wrap up our 2012 films. And the first film, uh, for at least for East Screen, of 2013, and that is The Last Supper. Um, so that's all on the horizon. Anything else between now and then that people should know about, Kevin? Uh, there is an indie film opening called, uh, uh, let me look at this, Celeste and Jesse Forever. Uh, stars Adam Sam- uh, Andy Samberg, sorry, the former Saturday Night Live member. Uh, Adam Sa- Andy Samberg, um, and uh, also a Thai horror film called 3 A.M. So, uh, and no relation to the like 1 A.M., 2 A.M. Hong Kong films, right? Oh no, no, not the Hong Kong films. I, I thought you meant uh, you were going to say Thai films, but no, no. I think I think this is a are, separate are, film. So are, I might, yeah. Is so there, I might is catch there a super hip indie movie? Is there a 1 A.M. and 2 A.M. Thai film as well? No, I don't think so. No, okay. Because yeah, yeah I'll try and catch the the hip indie comedy romantic comedy and movie talk about for western all right that sounds good all of that and much more on our next show until then this is east screen west screen wishing you good viewing happy 2013 and we'll see you next week see you next week everybody happy new year Hi.